Greetings. Welcome back to the Small Town Podcast. Connor here. If you find the content in this episode valuable, I will be sharing my own thoughts, my post-conversation notes, if you will, on my Patreon page. You can find a link to that in the description of this episode. There's only one tier for subscription, and that's basically the price of a cup of coffee. Subscribers will have access to my post-conversation thoughts, as well as access to other exclusive content. In any case, I encourage you to share this episode with anyone you think might draw value from it. Um, You can contact me via my podcast email, also in the description of this episode. And while you're at it, leave a review on Apple or Podbean or wherever else you're listening. All right, enjoy. I'm primed. I've just been in a two-hour-long meeting with somebody. Oh, so you're ready to go over at Green Frog. So <laughs> okay, my my talking apparatus is ready to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Um, what are some common questions that you get from people about just the Orthodox tradition in general? A lot of the questions that I that I receive either have to do with uh, things such as, you know, what do you believe about scripture? What yeah. do you believe about tradition? What do you believe about uh, liturgical practice? I mean, um, sacraments. Mm-hmm. And then, quite honestly, probably more often than anything else, is why do you wear a dress? <laughs> I could be at the gas station, <laughs> and somebody will come up to me and say, uh, what are you? I mean, you're, wear, you're wearing a dress. You're obviously some kind of religious person. Are you yeah. a Muslim? Are you a priest? Or what are, are you a monk? Uh-huh. You know, what are you? And uh, so that is the most common thing. So, you know, you walk around, and you see you're wearing a long black dress, and people, it does raise eyebrows yeah. for people. Yeah, so, uh, I guess. Um, well, I come out of the, the martial arts background, and so there's a lot of dress wearing there, too, so you're Absolutely. in good company. Absolutely. I studied, uh, I started studying karate when I was five years old. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and took a hiatus from it for a while, and, and then studied taekwondo in college, and uh, uh, just picked up some things here and there. Uh, admittedly, mostly self-taught, which is not the traditional approach yeah. by any means, but due to... Uh, the lack of availability of resources in, uh, in the past. Uh, but I love reading the literature that comes out of oh, yeah. the martial arts yeah. traditions. Yeah. I have probably 30, 40 books in my library on martial arts. And well, you, you understand then the relationship between martial arts discipline and the Christian life. Absolutely. And just spirit, a spiritual journey. That's something I've tried to explain to people before, and it's, it's hard to describe for people who haven't actually experienced it what comes out. Um, because for me growing up, that was my that was my sport, and my friends were doing soccer, and it's just not the same. You know, it's not to say that there aren't benefits from doing soccer, but there's a there's a a ritualistic depth that comes out of the martial arts experience that it's just hard to replicate. Martial arts as a tradition, not simply as a means to protect yourself in a dark alley, but as a whole tradition is very much, I think, about self-determination. Mm-hmm. And so you focus on a precision of mind and body and a unity of mind and body. 
And so, therefore, there's a watchfulness that you you put into practice about every yeah. motion of your body and the balance and and all these sorts of things. And you have to discipline the mind and you and really you discipline your your diet and you discipline your spirit and you discipline every part of your life. Uh-huh. And uh, I think there is some kinship to Christianity in the sense even that Paul, when he speaks about training, you know, the word that he uses in Greek is eschesis, which literally does mean. You know, it's it's the context that he is pulling from is training as an athlete or as a soldier. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, so I mean, there's a, there is very much that sense of tradition there, or, or that sense of of discipline there, and uh, and and being the way of life yes. that a Christian is called yes. to is being one that is uh, watchful, one that is disciplined, one that is to some extent. Obviously, we have a theological context for this, but one of self-determination as well, you right. know, working out your salvation. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that there's a lot, of, a lot of overlap in some of those basic concepts. Obviously, there is a limit to it, but there's definitely some common ground there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Paul takes it even further when he talks about uh, putting on the equipment for war exactly. as, as though we are in a constant battle. Absolutely. And uh, there, there has to be this, uh, this preparedness and this awareness that goes along with that struggle. So, if if that is not there in the Christian life, I think that you're hard pressed to truly call it a Christian life, hmm. because we are called to warfare. Uh, you know, it's obviously the powers of darkness that we're at war with, uh, and and the armor that we take up. Yeah. are the very pieces that, that Paul himself explains to us and recommends to us. And it's, it's, it's not that we're warring against other people or anything like that, but it is very much a warfare. And if we do not see our Christian life in light of the spiritual war that we are involved in, it's not one of those things where you can choose to absentee yourself from it. You are in that war, mm-hmm. either as one who's a soldier and on the front lines or as a victim. Mm. You're going to be one or the other. And if we if we choose not to acknowledge it, we're still going to be part of it. We're just mm-hmm. going to be a victim. Yeah. And uh, and you might as well almost not even be. I mean, to put it, I know this might seem a little bit blunt, but you you might as well not be a Christian if you're not going to be involved in it, because that is what we are called to. Yeah. So. Have you seen um, you seen the movie Lord of the Rings? Oh yes. There's a scene where Aragorn says to King Theoden, "Open war is upon you, yes. whether you would wish whether it or not." You, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, listening to some of your previous podcasts, I think that there are some very common ground between us. I mean, I've read The Lord of the Rings seven times. I've read this Silmarillion three times. It's uh, just and and the the literary tradition that is centered around him and yeah. Lewis and MacDonald and um, uh, G.K. Chesterton and all of those. Uh, yeah. I, I love I yeah. love all of them. Well, I'm hoping that this will be um, not just. A beneficial conversation for myself listening, you know, to some of the things you have to say. But I think I, I'm hoping that it will also be inspiring to people because I come from a very Protestant background. And so to sit down with someone from the Orthodox tradition, I think will be really beneficial for people. Um, so I've, been, I've really been looking forward to this. Well, by so. God's grace, this will be beneficial to both of us. You know, I mean, It has it's... been a, a hard fought meeting. <laughs> we, fi- we finally I'm sorry figured out our s- schedules. I'm yeah. sorry my schedule is, is as chaotic as it is, but you know, uh, I was in a clergy meeting. This is part of the issue. Is we actually hosted a clergy meeting okay. at our parish this week. Oh, and, okay, and okay. All of the clergy are on their way home today, 
But um, in one of the thing, one of the presentations that was made yesterday, somebody said that the that a Christian is called to cooperate with God in turning chaos into cosmos. <laughs> well, sometimes our schedule is chaos yes. that needs to be turned into cosmos yeah. as well. So. Yeah. Oh, that's great. But. Are you full time at? St. Nick's, or do you go back and forth between different congregations? No, I'm full-time at St. Nicholas. Okay. Um, my wife works full-time, so okay. much of our schedule juggling has to do with that, but um, she actually works with CASA, a nonprofit in the juvenile court system here in town. Hmm. Um, so her job is, is very demanding, very difficult and rewarding at the same time, and she is absolutely wonderful at it. Hmm. She has a heart for that, like nobody else. Yeah. Um, but between her schedule, my schedule, we have four kids from the ages of one to 11, and we homeschool. So with all of that together, yeah, yeah. it makes for a little chaos. Okay, so you guys homeschool. Well, we that's do. another yeah. that's another uh, uh, thing that we share in common. I grew up in a, a homeschooling family, so yes. there's, yeah, another... And I was homeschooled, actually, okay. uh, myself, so... Uh, I, I grew up in that. I actually grew up in Protestant churches. I'm, I'm a convert to Orthodoxy okay. uh, as well, and uh, so I have a great love for the best of all of the traditions that I was a part of, and I have a great love both from personal experience and then also for the reasons we choose to homeschool our kids. I yeah. have a great love for homeschooling. Not perfect. Yeah. Nothing is in yeah. that sense, but... Yeah. Well, on your background, uh, someone told me that you're a bit of a Renaissance man, that you've basically tried every denomination under the sun. Is that an exaggeration? or it, is... It's not much of an... Well, for, I'm not a Renaissance man, okay. although I would certainly love to be one. Okay, all right. Uh, in terms of my, my religious background or history, uh, it's pretty close to the truth that I've been through. I, okay. I, I've gone through multiple different... And, and we can talk about it if you, if you want to, but I've certainly gone through multiple different uh, Protestant traditions. I'd be really um, interested to hear... Sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, so I'll just tell you, and, and I tell people this, I'm, I can be blunt in the way I say things. I have no intention of anything I say as coming off as being anything other than the honest expression of my experience without judgment, prejudice, or anything like that, okay? I'm ready. This is just what I have experienced. Let's do it. And again, like I say, I love... I thank God for what my, my uh, past experience has been because it has made me the person that I am. By God's grace, I'm not perfect, but I'm thankful that I'm better today than I was yesterday, let's say. I was brought into the Christian faith in the Church of Christ as a kid. Okay. And to, again, to be blunt, kicked out of the Church of Christ a few years later. Okay. Uh, as we began, as my family began to have a more sacramental view of um, the services and this... And, and oh, so your whole family was kicked out. My whole out. family was, Not just yes, you, okay. No. We ended up going to... Uh, uh, forgive me, I'm, I'm, I am a little hesitant here, knowing that this is going to be put out and how I want to put some of this. It's but not live, if that's any comfort. True, true. When we, when we left the Church of Christ, being homeschooled, one of the families in our homeschool group was an Episcopal priest. Okay. So he invited us to his parish. We went there. We were, of course, making sort of this journey towards a more sacramental, liturgical practice in our, in our church life. So we went to the Episcopal Church, but he was very soon thereafter transferred, and another priest came in. And I'm sad to say that that priest in a homily said he didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. Okay. So we left that church, went to a 
Reformed Presbyterian house church mm -hmm. for a while, mm -hmm. but also sad to say, and these are not reflections on these traditions, these are reflections on the individual cases. Okay. It was a personality cult around that pastor there. He'd established this church in his home after breaking off of another church, and it was a personality cult. So I left there. Leaving there, I stopped going to church for a number of years. I said, How I old were you at this point? In college. Okay. I said I was a Christian. In other words, I said I believed in Christ. I didn't think the church existed anymore, not what I read about in scriptures. Um, certainly many of the traditions I'd been a part of had said that we were, we were that church, but, um, but my experience had been that it was very broken. Mm. So for a number of years, I stopped going to a Christian church. I knew that I needed some sort of church life. I knew I needed what I would now call some sort of ascetic life. What I did was I created this thing that was a blending of Buddhist meditative practices with my Christian prayer and my own forms of fasting and various different things as I was pulling from traditions. Yes. Trying to put together and recreate something that I thought was as whole as I could make it. After doing that for a couple of years and being exhausted, honestly, by it, having some wonderful moments in it, but also having some really horrid moments in it, my family ended up going to a Lutheran church. And they kept saying, you need to come to the Lutheran church here. This pastor is really wonderful. You'll like him. The two of you will get along very well. You can have all these intellectual conversations, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I finally, I finally went and, um, and did become a member of that parish and actually served as the youth director there for a, a while. Uh, he was wanting me to go to seminary. I was considering it. But at that point, I was also in the process of taking courses for a year in England and then moving to the south of France where my sister had been taking classes and living with her after I'd been in England for a while. So I was, I was over there, and I went over there with the purpose of studying church history. So I was traveling around going to all of these different historic sites, mostly by foot. I, I hiked from the channel following Hadrian's Wall to the Atlantic Ocean and all kinds of different places and uh, had a lot of really interesting encounters with the locals and all kinds of stuff as mm -hmm. I found myself uh, somehow on private property here and there or whatever. Yeah. But going to these Christian sites, I began to realize that there was something that was a disconnect, there was a gap in my understanding of church history and church tradition in terms of just being a living practice that was experienced across time. Yeah. For instance, I went to Lindisfarne for a week, and the monastery itself is all ruins, but they have a museum there. And in the museum, you have all these mosaics that depict basically Benedictine monks, but all of the items on display in the museum predate the Benedictine hmm. monasticism. So I thought to myself, what's the discrepancy here? So then I began to look into what that historical gap was in my understanding. That's when I came across the Orthodox Church intellectually, academically. At the same time here in the United States, my parents were given a book called Becoming Orthodox by Father Peter Gilquist by a family friend. He said, I read this. I don't know what to do with this. I need you to read it. Get your thoughts on it. Well, they read it. They said, we don't know what to do with this. Matthew, what are your thoughts on it? So we're having this dialogue across the Atlantic Ocean about this thing called the Orthodox Church. Okay. I came back to the States after a year, and we went to a church in Memphis, St. John's in Memphis, met with the priest there, and I told him, I said, you know, the first time we met, 
I said, this is what my history is. I don't trust pastors. I don't trust priests. I just mm. need you to know that going in. Of course, I'm a priest, so we know God has a sense of humor, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, stuff like that tends to happen. Doesn't it, though? Yes. We, um, we went to a simple evening Vesper service, which is an evening prayer service, very simple. And for the first time, there was like a light bulb that went off. And I thought to myself, oh, I have a sense all of a sudden of what I have been looking for. I had no name for it previously. I still didn't really have a name, but I had a, a new sense of it. Mm-hmm. I'd been part of youth worship programs. We'd had meetings where we said, how do we make this so that it is a good exper- a spiritual experience for people where we can energize people spiritually, where we can uplift the spirit, we can um, call them back to Christ, et cetera, et cetera. The way these people are worshiping has a confidence to it I've never experienced before. Mm. That was the way I put it in my mind at the time. A confidence to a it. A confidence. Okay. That this, you know, the word religion means man's search for God. So it's us st- striving to, to come up to him in a sense. And I felt like something about this worship, and now I'm putting it in terms that I have sort of developed a little bit since then, but okay. this was the feeling that I had at the time, that somehow this was from above. I had no context for that, nothing terribly rational at the time to be able to describe it or justify it or anything, but it just felt like this was something that was divine. And of course, you know, I come to know, to learn that they called their, the Orthodox would call their their services on Sundays the divine liturgy. Okay. So, um, so they, the Orthodox Church has this sense that the services of the Church, this worship that we have that we practice is one that was received by God rather than one that is a manifestation of man's search to reach out to God. Mm-hmm. And there was a need in me that was met because I felt like I'd been searching, striving for God for so long, and here I, it was as if he'd been there all this time. I'd been over in this corner searching for him, but he's been over in this corner the entire time giving to humanity the very thing that I was looking for, I just had not been looking in the right place. Instead, I'd been trying to recreate it, you know, and not successfully. Mm-hmm. Again, that's my personal experience. Right, right. Um, so with that one service, it totally transformed my approach to what church is. In fact, I began to realize that the question that I was trying to answer was exactly about the church. It wasn't about Christ. I already believed in the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. I accepted all the traditional doctrines of of historic Christianity about Christ and the Incarnation, about salvation, about uh, the Trinity, etc., etc. I realized that for me, and I would actually say, the question, the one of the main theological questions of, of our time is the question of what is the Church? And that was the question that I was experiencing in a very personal, existential sort of way, you know. And, uh, and the answer was beginning to unfold for me. And, uh, yeah, so, so at that point, for me, I began to look into the theology. I began to make these huge lists of this is what I believe, this is what the traditions I've been a part of believe, this is what the Orthodox Church believes, what's true, what's historic, what is 
what was given by Christ to the apostles, et cetera, et cetera. And I began to weed through some things, you might say. And it certainly was not as systematic and everything as I wanted it to be. Right. I mean, you just live your life, and a lot of it just also yeah. is ex- experiential. But things did fall into place by God's grace. Okay. Wow, there's so much there we can unpack. Um, the big question is, what is the church? Yes. Okay. Could you expand on that further? I'm really curious. So let me put, a, put it in context here. Okay. Within the history of Christianity, and this is, this is accurate to Orthodox, the Orthodox Church today, that our doctrine has always been developed in, in terms of its rational uh, description, definition, however you want to put that. And really, that's a whole topic there, too, because we would say that it is a description. The doctrine and the dogma of, of the Church is a description of the living tradition of the Church. And okay. it is the tradition of the Church that you are preserving. It's the life of the Church that you're preserving. And the only time in the history of the Church that doctrines have really been developed have been when the life of the Church has been attacked by what we would call a heresy, hmm. where the truth, which sets us free, is being watered down, replaced, whatever, by a lie, by delusion, whatever it might be, deception. And, and so where the, the living experience of Christ that the Christians of, every, of all places at all times have accepted and have experienced that that living experience, when that has been attacked and has been necessary to defend the truth of that life, that's when a doctrine was established. And, of course, we would say that the main aspects of that are sort of codified in the canons of the seven ecumenical councils, okay. which have to do almost, ex- almost solely with the true divinity and humanity of Christ and what that looks like as it begins to sort of parse down into the, some more of the details, and even the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which you probably know had to do with icons and iconoclasts, mm-hmm. that still is all about the Incarnation. Yeah. So they had to do with Christ, the Incarnation, the Holy Spirit. Nothing ever really had to do with the Church. Now, early on, the reason for that was because you had the Christian Church and you had paganism. And in our day, that, of course, is not the case. So we have to define with fear and trembling what the Church is. From an Orthodox perspective, the Church is the living tradition and experience of Christians in Christ. It's, it is what has been, what is common to all Christians everywhere at all times, at least historically, how we, yeah. un, how we understand that. So what we mean by that then, or, or as I try here haltingly and unsuccessfully to sort of pull this apart and not dissect it and kill it too much... Right. Because you can't separate the form from the content. The life of, of Christians is the Church. It's life in Christ. And if you begin to separate it from the, the form and say, okay, what is, what is the Church? And you've got this form, well, it's, it's this and it's that and the other thing. And you begin to separate this form to define it, but you separate it from the life of Christians in the Church, then you begin to, you really do begin to kill it. So for us as Orthodox Christians, we would say in our creed, in the Nicene Creed, it's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and so what that means is that there is one church, 
It's the, the unity is found in Christ, and it's and it's in the church is the body of Christ. It is as the fathers fathers of the church say. It is actually a continuation of the incarnation of Christ. Saint Irenaeus says that, and many other fathers since then have said that uh, that Christ was incarnate in the flesh uh, during his earthly ministry. He ascended to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit. Some people would say the church was you know had its birthday on Pentecost, um, and then. What you have there is you have, again, the incarnation, but, but Christ is incarnated in, in each one of us who are faithful members of the church. And it started with the apostles and then the disciples that they had, et cetera, et cetera, and it gets passed down. So it's, it is just, there's one church in that sense, and it's, the unity is found in Christ as the head, and it is found in, the, in the, the church as the faithful who are of one accord in their, um, their belief and in their worship. The word orthodox means right belief, right worship. Early on, of course, the church was not called the Orthodox Church. It was just the church, and the terms sort of began to be used as there was separation between the East and the West. Mm -hmm. Um, But at any rate, so one, holy. It's holy because it is the body of Christ. So it itself is what we would now call sacramental. It itself is holy. It itself is set apart for God because it is the body of Christ. And also the Holy Spirit abides in it. The Holy Spirit abides in us as individual believers, but abides in the church as a whole. And those two things are not separate from each other at the same time. Um, Catholic. The word Catholic has a, a nuanced dual meaning. It can mean universal, but it also means lacking in nothing. And as Orthodox, we tend to focus more on that second element of it, lacking in nothing, lacking in nothing that is necessary for our salvation, let's say. And then apostolic, having to do with the the idea that the faith that we have is one that has a familial kind of quality to it. You have, because we are the sons and daughters of of God, Christ gave this teaching to his apostles who, through the laying on of hands, gave it to the next generation, to the next generation, etc. It's apostolic in that it is the same teaching as the apostles, but it's also apostolic in that those who are of that faith, they come into the family of the apostles as well, in that sense. And there's a lot we could say that's trying to, you know, you, when, you, when you say something as simply as you can, you're also right. abstracting it a little bit. Right. So there's a lot yeah. that could be said These about things branch things, out, and then there exactly. are branches that go from there and exactly. from there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I have been thinking, um, especially over the past 12 months, um, that the number one question of our time is, what does it mean to be human? And I think that we might be saying the same thing just in two different ways because if if we are if the church is the body of Christ then those two things become the same question mm-hmm. you know what what does it mean to be the church what does it mean to be human it is in Christ that we become most fully human absolutely um and so i think i think there's a commonality there that at first I don't hear, but then the more you're talking, the more I realize that I think we're saying the same thing. Absolutely. I think, so first of all, um, St. Irenaeus, again, says, the glory of God is a man fully alive. Yes. I mean, that speaks very much to what we in the Orthodox Church would call true personhood. In fact, our theology is very much centered around that. Uh, we, We find out not only all that there is for us to know about the divine Godhead in Christ, but also all that there is to know about true personhood, true humanity in Christ. He reveals all of that to us. 
Now, what I would say is that there are two approaches to what it means to be the church and what it means to be a human, in, in, in as seeing those two things as being very, very much the same question in a lot of respects. And one is to attempt to humanize God. Mm-hmm. That happens very often. Um, it can happen within Christian traditions of, of any stripe. It can happen when we, even though there's a, there is absolutely a place for social work, etc., it can happen when we put that above the truth of the gospel and above the purposes of the gospel of salvation, man's union with God. Um, and, and that very oftentimes happens among Christians of, of every stripe, because in a world as fractured as ours is, we are seeking common ground so that there is some kind of accord, some kind of union, some kind of peace. And sometimes it seems that the only place that we can find that is not in theology, but in social work. But what we do in the process is we begin to water down the actual gospel, the essentials of the faith. And by that I don't mean ticking off these doctrinal lists. What I mean is that the, the gospel is God became man so that man could become God, as the fathers would say. What Christ is by nature, we become by grace. That's the whole purpose of the church. That's yeah. what the church is yeah. for, yeah. is to make us by grace what Christ is by nature. And we participate in that divine nature. That's what the church is. is It is that participation in it. So the other approach is the deification or the divinization of man. And I would argue that the historic understanding of Christianity is exactly that. When I talked earlier about... um, my experience of that simple Vesper service, and as if the worship came down rather than us sort of trying to create it or whatever, that plays some element in what I'm trying to say here, because I began to understand that the purposes of everything that happened in the church was about sanctifying human life and, 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 and the human person. Um, I, I, as an analogy, you have C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. Have you ever read that? I have read part of it. I haven't, I haven't finished it yet. So very simply put forth, you know, the premise of the book is you have an individual, you know, it's obviously it's couched in, in Greek mythology, but, right. but you have a person who, like Job, strives against God, against the gods in this case, seeking an answer and never hearing the voices of these gods. But when finally she dies... What she come, what the realization that she comes to is that she had not been person enough to stand face to face with the gods, mm. and it was only till she had a face that she was able to be face to face with God. Mm. Till wow. she was had wow. a full personhood that she could stand face to face with the God. That's uh, that is the story of Job also yeah. Yeah. in a lot of ways, um, and and there's Job is a, absolutely wonderful. I, I love the way that God deals with Job. He does not answer Job's questions. He simply gives him himself. Mm-hmm. And Job seems to be content with that. He's been asking all these questions. He's not accepted any of the lies and deceptions and compromises of anybody else. He's not accepted the words of his wife, curse God and die. He continues to ask these questions, and it shapes him. I mean, even the people, even his friends, were obviously deeply spiritual, mature, spiritually mature people. They sat for like seven days before they even started talking you know, I mean, but 
it still matured him. And when God appeared to him, he says, I have heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. And he's satisfied. He's satisfied because the gift that God gives to humanity is himself. And when we stand in his presence, it changes us. It transfigures us. The yearning of all the Old Testament is a yearning to stand in the presence of God, but with the knowledge that if I do, I will die. And the fulfillment of that yearning is in the gospel when God himself comes and stands in our presence. And then the church is even more gracious than that because the church is him saying, oh, but look, you're not just going to stand in my presence. I'm going to abide in you, and you're going to abide in me. I will make you my home. You make me your home. Yeah. And, uh, and so what that is is that is the deification, the divinization of humanity. does not mean that we become somehow melded and meshed into the, into the Trinity. We're not like a fourth member of it or anything like that. Yeah. By grace, we become what, God is, what Christ is by nature, by participation. Um, but that process, which is sort of top-down, God condescending to us to make us like him, that is the deification of humanity. Yeah. And so the glory of God is a man fully alive, not just as a true person, but as a deified person. That is totally different from what we sometimes come across in, in any tradition, actually, depending on what people's experience with their education, whatever, you know, however, however deep they may be in their tradition or not, or whatever tradition they come out of. Sometimes it's not the case that that's, that's the approach that, that we have, but that, I believe, is the historic. You see that in the scriptures. You know, you've got the, uh, the gathering demoniac. The people come out and they're like, go, for, go away from us. Leave us, leave us alone. You know, you, you see that multiple times. Like, they are afraid of the fact that there's this deity in their midst. You know, and you find that, that sort of thing quite often in the scriptures. Um, so I think those are the two approaches I have a tendency, I, I, I sort of process my thoughts out loud, so I was going somewhere with this thought that had to do with your question, and now I don't remember even what your this question is, was. This is the beauty of podcasts, yes. it's long form, and so we can, right. we can follow as many rabbit trails as we want to. Um, okay, so on deification, yes. um, as someone from outside the Orthodox tradition, you know, in Protestant circles, we don't use that word very much. Sure. I actually really like that word. And the reason why I like that word is there's a self-honesty there yes. because it is a core question of humanity um, becoming more like God. It Absolutely. is something that we care deeply about. And I would challenge people who say that they, that they don't feel that way, do you watch superhero movies? Absolutely. If you, if you enjoy the story of Iron Man or the story of Captain America, then you respond emotionally to this question because it is a cultural wrestling with that question. And it's all through the Bible, even from the Garden of Eden. Do you want to be like God or not? Um, and so it's such a gracious and merciful thing for God to include in the salvation story us becoming more and more like him. Yes. I mean, it's such a beautiful thing. Yes. Any, any theology or philosophy that says to us that we are not called to be like God is heretical. Hmm. I mean, it, it is a lie. Yeah, I know that the word heretical probably you know can have some connotations for people in different different directions, but but it is absolutely a lie. It is the lie that the serpent gave to Adam and Eve, 
because in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. They, they, they participated in the life of God. We could say that they were not spiritually mature. People ask the question all the time. This is one of the questions I do get. You asked early on, what are some questions you get? Yeah. Well, if Adam and Eve were perfect in the garden, why did they fall? Well, they weren't perfect. They were innocent with the potential to become perfect. Made in the image and according to the likeness presupposes a progression of growth and maturity in the yeah. spiritual life. Right. So they were innocent. And as long as they walked with God and partook of his life, then they had life and they were maturing spiritually. But at that moment when they listened to the serpent, the serpent said to them, everything that God is telling you is a lie. He doesn't really want you to be like him, but you can become like him if you do what I say. If they had continued to walk with God, God would have dealt with the serpent, and they would have continued on that progression of of spiritual maturity, moving into the likeness of God. But instead they didn't. They accepted the lie. Well, we do that all the time. You're not meant to be like God, so strive to become like God on your own. Rebel so that you can become like God. And, of course, the result of that is we become the exact opposite. So it is the essential question of our humanity, and all religions and all mythologies and, you know, Marvel and DC It's modern mythology. Yes, Yes, it is. Um, This is one of my soapboxes. Yeah, Yeah. they all strive for that. Our poetry strives for that. Our best music strives for that. Uh, It is all about that. It is absolutely the central question. It's the existential question of humanity for all time. Yeah. Uh, And I think that that Christianity gives the answer because, you know, in the the conversion of C.S. Lewis, the discussions between him and Tolkien, it comes out, well... This is myth that is true, true myth, you know, and, and that's absolutely true. It yeah. is. God truly did become man. The myths have been fulfilled. The prophecies have been fulfilled. The yearning that we find in the Old Testament and in Gilgamesh and everything else or whatever has all become true. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, to deny that is to settle for something far less, and it is to diminish our very humanity. Mm-hmm. Another thing that you um, that you said that I really resonated with was um, in regards to um, the church's responses to heresy. You said something like um, the the great doctrinal formations of the church always come out in a time of challenge, and that reminded me of what we talked about before with the warfare mm-hmm. aspect. You know, the church really becomes the church in the midst of this conflict in the heavenlies, uh, this, this conflict uh, within ourselves. Um, we can't get away from this, this war that we're in the midst of. Yes. So, Christianity is very incarnational, yeah. not just in its theology, yeah. in the way that it's supposed to live its life. To be incarnational is to be sacramental, and mm-hmm. I can come back to that, but, but I believe that that is as absolutely true, and it's expressed in the history of the Church. For the Orthodox Church, one of the ways that that has been manifest, the incarnational, the sacramental elements of it, is that it has been in constant warfare. Uh, it's been in warfare with heresies of various different times throughout yeah. much of the modern era. It's been subdued under various different regimes. And it can seem here in the United States as if orthodoxy is foreign, mm. uh, that it is highly ethnic, but of, of a foreign ethnicity, and yeah. those sorts of things. 
and uh, and relatively new on the scene to some extent, which is actually not true. There were Orthodox churches on the East Coast in the mid-1800s, and there were Orthodox churches in Alaska and on the West Coast earlier than that. Okay. Uh, however, because of the um, the catacomb churches, we would say, in under the Soviet Union and under the Ottoman Empire and these sorts of things, uh, very much it did become a persecuted church in the modern era. And the manifestation of the church in the United States was diminished to some extent because it was always... Uh, there, there was never any sort of, uh, despite having a history of evangelism, you know, from the apostles themselves going out through the world and, and, and that sort of thing, during the modern era, it was, a, it was a persecuted church. But in the midst of its persecution, it was being forced mm-hmm. to maintain that incarnational aspect of it yeah. and not abstract its faith, not make its faith sort of like to, to, they would, we would ride on our laurels because this is what our heritage and history is or that sort of thing, but something that you had to work out every day because of the persecution that they were undergoing. Now here in the United States, just to sort of follow that thought a little bit, many of the churches in the United States started out as immigrant churches where people were trying to preserve something that they were bringing from their place of persecution. And uh, with that in mind, they did sometimes create little enclaves that seemed very ethnically centered. To America, which is a melting pot, that seems sort of foreign. But even to Orthodox who, you know, have moved out of those ethnic ghettos, for lack of a better way to put it, there's nothing terribly wrong with that in one sense because the faith is always incarnated in the local ethnicity, the local language, the local yeah. practices, that sort of thing. And um, so people that was like, well, are you Greek? Are you Russian? Are you this or the thing? I'm Orthodox. You know, in, in Russia, because they were Russians, the Orthodox Church took on a Russian character to it. In Greece, it took on a Greek character to it because, because it incarnated itself. It enfleshed itself in the, the everyday vitality of their life. Yeah. And in America, it's a young church here in the United States, it's figuring out how to manifest itself in the best of what is American culture um, and that sort of thing. And, and as in order to receive some guidance, we take from some of those cultures for sure, where they have been able to over a long time manifest and incarnate that, the faith, so that we, can, we have some, some guidance in, in how we go about it here. Uh, because obviously here, being a melting pot, there are a lot of conflicting um, influences. Yes. So, so, so we are conservative in our approach to that, knowing that in in God's good time, all things will come to fruition. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were talking earlier about your journey with uh, looking at some of the spiritual practices from other traditions, like you talked about your the period of time where you were experimenting a lot with fasting and. Uh, Maybe some prayer practices also from other, other non non Christian. Uh, the prayer practices that I that I took came from you know various different monastic uh, forms within uh, Roman Catholicism. Okay, uh, and and some things that I had experienced in Protestantism. Uh, the the main thing that I took from from things like Buddhism were the meditative elements, yes. and I tried to insert the prayer into it um, to mixed success, we'll say. Yeah, yeah. But, yes. <laughs> um, 
one thing I have noticed, and and your story seems to seems to confirm this. There is there are a lot of people who come out of rough church experiences. They get burned, whether by uh, pastors or other church members, and um, their natural inclination is is avoidance to kind of pull back. Mm-hmm. Um, but you found a a revitalization of your spiritual journey by going uh, deeper into um, more a more robust ritual experience. So it's the opposite of what in the Protestant mind, you know, I, I know some people um, who their, their inclination is to kind of pull back and look for the churches where it's more just emotional because the theology is just too hard at that point because I've had too many rough experiences with theological background. Yes. Um, but my own church is a liturgical Southern Baptist church. And, and I have seen uh, multiple people come through who had really bad past church experiences and have found healing in the ritual side of things yes. um, and have gone on to uh, become part of the Anglican church or the Orthodox church. Um, and, and, it's, and it's counterintuitive. I, you wouldn't think that it would be that way, but there's something in the, the ritual experience that is healing that is exactly the word I was thinking. It is. It is healing. It is sacramental. Uh. And a sacrament is something that is set apart wholly unto God. And our salvation and our healing comes from our participation in God himself. So we yeah. have to be set apart for him so that he can put us in his presence. That's what the being set apart is, is we're being put into his presence. And then he makes of us something that is sacramental, something that is holy. And that process is healing. You know, God doesn't give us healing. He gives us himself, and that heals us. Mm-hmm. That was the experience of Job. Job means a great deal to me. I reflected on Job a lot during that process, as yeah. you just described it, uh, and continued to use him as, as a mentor in some respect to continue to push beyond where I felt was a comfortable place to be. And, and he inspired me in many respects, because I, I felt that if Job, going through what he went through, could continue to be faithful to God in the way he knew how, and in the end God would appear, what I wanted, what it, one of the things that happened is that I was shed of all of, okay, I, sh- I shouldn't say all, I'm human, I was shed of many of the illusory desires for the gifts of God. Hmm. As, as they were taken from me or kept out of reach yes. here or there or whatever, so that there in the end was nothing left for me but to desire God himself, which is as it should be. Yes. When you desire God himself, you're getting somewhere. I have a long way to go. Don't misunderstand me at all on that. But we are beginning to understand what salvation is. Salvation is to desire God himself. And God himself, I mean, this is, this is why for us as Orthodox Christians, the Eucharist is, you know, Holy Communion, we call it Eucharist. Two things about this. It is to us the true body and blood of Christ. In other words, we feed on God himself. That is a truth, an experiential reality. It is also symbolic of everything within the Church. Everything in the Church is about separating ourselves unto God, not in a pietistic way 
but as being one to be as to be made a crucible for God, being one to be made as a vessel for God, being made mm-hmm. as as one who is able to receive God and be filled with the plenitude of God and the plenitude of His salvation, the fullness of salvation. Um, in the process of 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 that, what happens is that we experience the church itself as being the sacrament where that transfiguration takes place, right? The other thing about the Eucharist is is the word Eucharist in the Greek means thanksgiving. So on the one hand, we partake of God, and then we become creatures of thanksgiving, where thanksgiving becomes the very nature of our being, so to speak. Yeah. And we become liturgical beings. What that means is that now we don't just worship on Sundays, Saturday nights, Wednesday nights when we have daily vespers, when we do our morning prayers, whatever it might be, we become persons through whom the very work of God is continually being manifest through every part of our life. And again then, that means that we're ushering the presence of God into the midst of whatever that work is, and it becomes worship. Mm -hmm. And so for us in the Orthodox Church, we have a, a prayer of blessing for everything. You know, we, in fact, we have a book, it's called The Book of Needs. It's multiple volumes large, and there are prayers for everything from blessing your garden to your home to your car to an airplane to whatever, all kinds of things, yeah. for every aspect of human life from the time of conception to the time of repose. You know, there's a blessing for everything. In the church itself, when we have a service, you know, we have everything is sung. We are sanctifying our sense of hearing. Uh, we have all these beautiful icons, which is not just decoration, but we are nonetheless sanctifying our sense of vision. Yes. We partake of the sacraments, so we are sanctifying our sense of taste. We have incense. We per- we're sanctifying our sense of smell, the bells again, with uh, all of these different things. Yeah. It's incarnated. Our yeah. faith is incarnated. That is done in that manifestation so that we know how to incarnate our faith in the midst of our suffering and our struggling and our tribulation and our temptation and our daily encounters and that sort of thing. Um, it sets for us the standard, it sets for us the vision of what worship is so that our entire life can become one of worship. Mm-hmm. Yet again, I went off on a tangent. This is so great. No, I, I definitely want to get your thoughts on icons and incense and all of that. This is, this is great. Um, one one other question on deification. Oh yes, yeah. um, I I believe that one cannot be the body of Christ on one's own; that it yes. has to be in communion with other believers. A Christian alone um, is no Christian at all. Yeah, well, Jesus says, "Where two or more are gathered, yes, there I am present with you." Um, it's not where one or more is gathered. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about that with deification because um, the Orthodox tradition seems to emphasize the institutional side of the church. And is that, I'm trying to think of the right way to ask this, is that one way that, that you try to answer that question of of what deification practically looks like. Like, it has to be in the context of the church as an institution or in the context of just other believers in general? Like, how do you, how do you describe that process? Well, so first of all, um, two things. One, I wanted to say about deification in general, the first time I ever encountered that was actually in the writing of C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. Just Great book, putting that out it? there. Yes. Um, but secondly... 
with regard to this question specifically, it's a pastoral aspect. It has a pastoral aspect to it. Okay. So the church is, is for all. Salvation is for all. But not all are at the same place. Yes. So pastorally, you have, we can call it an institution for the moment. I mean, there is, there's no sense of institution in our theology. There's no sense of institution. The church is not an institution. The church is okay. the body of Christ. Okay. If you look at, at our theologic, theological treaties and, and pastoral writings about it, uh, there's no sense of it as being an institution. You have okay. earthly administration yeah. to it, yeah. so that there is ordos, order in the church. Uh-huh. Yeah, if you have a better word, go for it. That's just the only yeah. word I can no, think absolutely, of at the time. Absolutely. But it is also a pastoral accommodation to some extent, because just about anybody can come into the church and they can receive something from it, mm-hmm. because it meets the needs of everybody at all levels. One person can come into it. Well, okay, I'll, I'll give you an example, a, a parallel example that hopefully simplifies this a little bit. There's a prayer in the church called the Jesus Prayer. Yes. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Many people, when they pray that, they will pray that whole prayer. But there is a saint within the church who, in one of his uh, conversations that was recorded, he said, you know, I've come to the place where just saying saying the name Jesus, not saying the whole prayer, just saying Jesus, has been enough to lift me Hmm. into heaven. So he could walk into the institution, quote-unquote, of the church, and the very first words of the church, bless, of the liturgy, blessed is the kingdom, could take him right into the kingdom, which is exactly what we are saying liturgically is happening. Yeah. But for another person, they don't get that. Maybe they get a moral teaching from the homily. That's where they are, that's what they need at that moment, in their level of spiritual maturity. The institution is a safeguard to preserve each person wherever they are so that we do not usurp the spiritual space of someone else mm-hmm. by being too charismatic, too emotional, too theological, too moral, too whatever it might be. We safeguard the, the, the institutional element of the church, safeguards the spiritual space of the other so that they have space to grow. If I'm too charismatic as a priest in my homilies or whatever, let's say, you know, then I could create a personality cult. Mm. And then what they're focused on is me and the way that I teach or whatever, whereas what I'm supposed to do is actually open up a space around a person where their life is oftentimes just closing in on them. And I'm supposed to pastorally open up a space so that they can spiritually breathe and there's a space there for them to be able to meet God and practice the presence of God and find the healing that they need. So the institutional aspect of it is a form that safeguards the content so that everyone is able to participate in it. You can't separate the form from the content, just like I said about the church as a whole earlier, and again, even just to sort of separate the the services of the church or the hierarchy of the church from this thing called the church is misleading because the church is a living organism. It is the body of Christ, which is why we in our theology, don't call it an institution or anything like that, because it is Christ himself. Okay. Um, We don't over-spiritualize it, because it's all incarnate Mm -hmm. as well. But, so we say, it's a mystery. Mm -hmm. In fact, we would say it is the mystery. People ask us, well, you believe in these sacraments, you know? You have, what, three sacraments, baptism, chrismation, the Eucharist, or somebody says you have seven sacraments or whatever. We have one sacrament, and that is the Church, which is the body of Christ. 
And everything that is incorporated into Christ is made holy. It's set apart and becomes sacramental because it participates in the, in the life of God. Yeah. And so everything yeah. can be brought into it. I say to my parishioners very often, there's, for us as Orthodox Christians, there's not a distinction between what is sacred and what is profane. There is a distinction between what is sacred and what we profane. Yeah. But all things God said in Genesis are good, and he never took that statement away. He never said, ah, it's not so good actually anymore. It's, it's good. It always is. It is very hard. It's always good. And, uh, and what we are doing, what the Church offers to us, is a reclamation of that goodness, which, by the way, good in Genesis doesn't mean simply morally good. It also means good in the sense of being true, and it means good in the sense of being beautiful. So when God said about creation, when he said about Adam and Eve, the, it is good, it was good in the sense that it is true and good and beautiful. Yeah. You see that in Greek also. Yes. The connection, the, the, the line between good and pleasant gets really blurry in the Greek language. Yes. And of yeah. course, we use the Septuagint version of the Old Testament in the Orthodox mm. uh, tradition. So, and that's the very same tradition, the same translation uh, or version of the, that Christ used himself. And when the we apostles. Read in, yes. When we read in the Gospels that he sat in the synagogue and he read from the prophets, he was reading the Septuagint. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Um, one thing that I respect the most about the Orthodox tradition, again, as someone, you know, looking in from kind of outside, um, is, is your willingness to use the word mystery. That's extremely important because, and it's, and it's not a cop out. It's no. not saying, it's not saying, well, we don't know, we don't care. We're just going to say it's mystery and just leave it at that. It's there, there's an honesty involved that there are some things that cannot be over dissected. And, uh, and I, I, really, I really respect that. That's, that's a good thing. I remember as a, as a kid reading uh, J.B. Phillips' book, uh, Your God is Too Small. And I think that the only way that you can have a God who's not too small is by acknowledging mystery. Yeah. You know, so we would yeah. say in the Orthodox Church that there are a lot of things that we would relegate to mm-hmm. mystery. It's not really relegation, but we would say our mystery because the nature of... In fact, actually, in the history of the Church... You know, we have this thing called apophatic theology. Yeah. So you say something about God or you say something about the church and you then immediately have to unsay it, so to speak. So if you say that God is the living God, then you have to say a negative, an apophat- make an apophatic statement of some sort. And that is either if God is alive, then we are not alive. Mm-hmm. If we are alive, then God is not alive. So because the, the reality between of what God is and who he is, and what we are, and who we are, are two totally thing, different things. In my catechism classes, I'll draw a line, horizontal line on the whiteboard, and I'll say, above this line is the uncreated. Below this line is the created. What goes into these two different categories? And people will throw out their different answers. People are usually pretty, feel pretty safe. They can say, uncreated, okay, I'm not even sure I know what that word means, but surely God is in that one. So we'll put God up there. And I say, okay, yeah, well, what's in the created? Well, you know, earth, yeah, uh, man, yeah. What about Satan? And then I get silence oftentimes, like, I'm not sure. What, 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 what do we really think about the angels and the demons and that sort of thing? And then I say, everything except God is in the created category. God alone is uncreated. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, period. So whatever you say about them is not applicable to whatever you say about what's in the created category. And if you say that it's applicable about them, if you say that, so we say in our service towards the end of, our, of many of our services, 
about God that he is the only, the, the truly or the only existing one. Well, if he's, we say that, only mm-hmm. existing one, because if he exists, we don't. Our existence comes from him. There's a dependence in our very nature upon him, not just for our salvation, but in the very nature of our being. So for us then, one of those mysteries is not just who God is, the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of marriage, the mystery of ordination, the mystery of the church, but also the mystery of human freedom in the midst of the providence of God. And so for us, you know, I know growing up in a Protestant tradition that the issue of free will, not free, not having free will, whatever, it's a big issue. That's a big deal. It's not in the Orthodox Church. And I'll admit that we sometimes stumble in our dialogue with Protestants about the Church and about free will because historically these were not issues for us. Mm. Um, the West rediscovered a whole bevy of ancient texts from ancient Greek philosophy as well as from early church fathers that we never lost in the East. Mm. And their interpretation of a lot of that, especially within scholasticism, very different from the way we interpreted things in the, in, in, in the East. Yeah. So the reformers, when they reacted to certain things, it's understandable that they, from our perspective that they reacted to it, but these issues were not issues in the East. Well, I'm sure it, I'm sure it happens the other direction also. Like, I'm sure... I'm sure that there are people in the Protestant tradition who can walk into minefields without realizing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, yes. I, I'm not sure what those minefields would be, but I'm sure it, I'm sure it exists in both ways. Yeah, I, I yeah. think that it does because there's not always a meeting of minds, and, yeah. and experience is, is oftentimes widely divergent. Yeah, and heresies aren't uh, omnipresent. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, although a lot of the ancient heresies are sort of rearing their heads up again, hmm. I think. Uh, uh, nowadays, but uh. um, okay, worship. Yes. Um, you already mentioned incense and icons. I have been thinking about icons for some time now in my reflections on the the church and what it means to bear God's image, and I am coming to the conclusion that the best tangible analogy, and I don't think analogy is even the right word, but the best way to understand what it means to bear God's image has to do with icons. Um, now, I'm saying this as someone who's never actually used an icon in worship, uh, so this is all secondhand knowledge for me, and so I'd love to get your thoughts on this. But it seems to me that the, the well, first of all, the Greek word for image is icon, yes. so there's that starting out. Um, Secondly, uh, the the image is a is a reflection of, in this case, Christ Himself, and that is what we are. Mm-hmm. So we are the icon of God, reflecting God to other people. Yes, and so this is another way to say what we said before: that you cannot be the church by yourself, right? Because you have to reflect God to one another. Yes. and to be the body of Christ to each other. So that's about as far as I've gotten with it. As someone who actually uses icons in worship, what can you, what can you say to that? Well, and first, on the last part of what you just said there, uh, about not being able to be a Christian alone because we are an icon, we are a reflection, reflection of, of God to each other, you know, the church itself is an icon. That's why there's one church, one baptism, one Lord, etc., as Paul tells us. The church is an icon. Like you said, in the Greek... 
uh, image is icon. So when we say that man was made in the image of God, he's an icon. Yeah. That was his. That was what his purpose was. Of course, he did not fulfill that purpose. But then Paul tells us that Christ is the icon of God. He did fulfill that purpose. Hebrews is all about how he is greater than and the fulfillment of all of these things that we see in the Old Testament. An icon is a symbol in the ancient Greek sense. A symbol in the modern idea is something that replaces that which is absent from among us. But the word itself means to bring two realities together. Therefore, the word symbol is basically an analogy of, in, of incarnation. It's an enfleshment of something. For us, theologically and experientially in our practice, to use an icon or any other fleshly, that's not the word I want to use, but like physical sort of thing in our worship is a testimony to our belief that the incarnation is real, right? If you go back and you look at the iconoclastic era and you look at the council in 787, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, where they affirm the use of icons, they don't say, oh, you know, it's an okay thing, like, it'll benefit you in your spiritual life. No, what they say very expressly is icons reveal to us that the incarnation is real. It is basically the same sort of thing as what we see with Thomas, who says, unless I can put my hand in the nails imprints of the nails and in his side, I won't believe. And and Christ gives him that scientific, so to speak, proof yeah. of the resurrection. Yeah. So he knows, okay, I know that this man is the God man, he walked among us, but did he really die for us or was or did his divinity somehow leave him? No. Yeah. All of it was real incarnation, real human life, real human experience, and all things except sin, as Paul tells us. Yeah. So that was true for Paul or for Thomas, and is true for us in the church. And we say all of this is real, and therefore, since all of that is real, everything is a means of incarnation for us now. It's important, I think, also to notice with that Thomas story. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, no, you off, please. but it's it, Jesus is way more gracious to Thomas in that story than we are when we read the story. We think like Thomas, what's wrong with you? But we are Thomas. Right. Like that—that's us. Yes. We're not the other disciples that believed immediately. We are Thomas. Yes. And Jesus is so gracious to him. You know, in the West, we know him as Doubting Thomas. Yeah. But in the liturgical text of the Orthodox Church, he is not called Doubting Thomas. He Now, there are some church fathers, there are some relatively modern uh, Orthodox theologians and pastors who have referred to that element of, of it, because he, sure. yeah, there was some of that, obviously, sure. there. But, but he is more often lauded as uh, one who secured for us the proof yeah. of a true death, burial, and resurrection, you know, rather than mm-hmm. some appearance of that. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, I so, didn't mean to cut you no, off. not yeah. at all, not at all. Um, so for us in our worship, everything is focused on the Incarnation. It is the central mystery, the central theological point of the Church, the central experience. We don't just intellectually assent to the Incarnation and then points of theology about our salvation. We practice the Incarnation. That is what the Church is. That is why apostolic succession, and I'm not just talking about like a bishop laying hands on another on, on a priest or whatever, I'm yeah. talking about the handing down of living tradition is so essential to us, because what we are doing is we are entering into that incarnation 
Mm-hmm. Again, remember that our concept is about, uh, in terms of becoming a real person, is about the deification of a person, the divinization. So it is about us being brought into that, right? We can't just recreate it. Like, how, if we could have recreated it, then there would have been no need for all of the Old Testament sacrifices, et cetera, et cetera. The whole point, God said, okay, look, you as pagans, you had these sacrifices, that doesn't work. I'm going to bring you to a new knowledge. We're going to stick with sacrifices for a while, but within this context of me being the one true God. But I still want you to understand, these sacrifices don't work. You can't do this. So we can't recreate that. We have to be brought into it. We have to be the branch that is... um, uh, grafted onto the vine, et cetera, et cetera. Christ uses all these types of images. We have to be adopted into the body of Christ, into the family of God. And and that's what the church is. So the church is that incarnation. It is the vine. It is the the body. It is the sonship and daughter daughterhood and everything like that. Um, and if that's the case, if this if the incarnation is so central and the thing that we are called to experience, then everything within that life is participation in that incarnation. So with the heresy of the iconoclasts, they said no. They were being influenced by Gnosticism. No. Things that are created are inherently, essentially evil. So you can't, God cannot abide, you know, there's a misinterpretation of no man can stand in the presence of God and live, etc., etc. God cannot abide in the presence of anything that is earthly, that is temporal, that is sinful. Therefore, to use this in your worship is to create idols, which, by the way, God himself, when he established the ancient temple and, well, first the tabernacle worship, I mean, like, their curtains had images of angels. They had the uh, angels on the on the ark and all these different images that were used. And he taught them to use right. images. It was only images of the Father that were not allowed. Right. And we make that point. We make no icons. It is uncanonical for us to make icons of the Father. Because the or fa- of things of nature? Like well, trees and no, stuff like that. We put that. trees in our icons and stuff like that. Okay. Um, but they are sort of, sort of the background of background. Uh, within which the incarnation sort of comes into, and and then so a perfect, a beautiful example of this would be an icon of the Transfiguration on Mount Tabor. Okay. All right. So you have Christ in the icon. You have Christ standing on on the mountaintop. So you have the mountain. You have trees and everything like that. Yes. And you have the disciples, and they're all sort of like laying on the ground. Cast in fear, so to speak, in the in their sense of awe of seeing Christ here deified in this way, illuminating illuminated in this way, and showing who he he truly is. And you have Moses and Elijah there as well. Well, you have a mandala of light around Christ. Okay. And in most of our icons, there are some exceptions for whatever reason, but in most of our icons, that includes everything around him. So Moses and Elijah are inside of that. The mountain is inside of that. And, and the, if you follow the line of that all the way down to its conclusion, it stops at the mountain, but if you follow the line down, it also always, the, the disciples are inside of it as well. Hmm. It's not the transfiguration of Christ. It's the transfiguration of everything in Christ. Wow. That is an icon yeah. of Christ, uh, yeah. of the church, yeah. of both. It's the same thing, essentially. Yeah. Um, so everything in our life that is brought into the presence of Christ is sanctified, set apart, holy unto him. That's why Christians of all stripes have theologies about morality, about sexuality, about um, you know, all forms of bioethics, uh, about uh, social work and almsgiving and these sorts of things. But see, for us as Orthodox at any rate, and I'm not saying we're the only ones that hold this, but our understanding of 
of Christianity is that it is not about being a good person, and it's not about having a right moral framework, um, and it's not about going to heaven and avoiding hell. It's about participating in God. So mm -hmm. to fulfill the virtues is not to fulfill a moral or ethical code. In college, I knew plenty of atheists who had a moral ethical code that they lived by a lot better than many of us Christians did. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily have agreed with what theirs was, but they held to it, they knew what it was, and they did abide by it. And we as Christians don't always do that. But to the, the virtues are actually the manifestation of the life of God in our presence, in a human way. One of the church fathers say, in fact, actually, his name is Elder Sophroni. I was told yesterday that he's being canonized right now, which I'm very thankful for. Okay. He's wonderful. At any rate... What, what does that mean, by the way, to be it canonized? It just simply means to be acknowledged for being holy okay. in his life before okay. and after his repose. Okay. We, we can talk about that a okay. little bit more okay. if you sure. want. Sure. But, um, but in one of his books, he says essentially that all of the commands of Christ, and really of the whole, of all the scriptures, and etc., I mean, it's all all Christ, but all of the commands of Christ are a manifestation of the divine life in human terms, or in a, in a way in which humanity can participate in it. So the commands, the virtues, they're not a moral code to follow, they're a divine life to participate in. Oh, I like that. Totally transformed for me when I discovered yeah. that. Could you say that one more time? The, the, the commands of Christ, the virtues, are not a moral code to follow, but a divine life, the divine life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be participated in. That is, that is extremely helpful. So Christ became a man. He lived out perfect manhood, mm -hmm. showing how that perfect manhood, in his obedience to the Father, mm -hmm. was able to be deified. Yeah was able to participate in the life of God. That's what obedience is. You know, the word obedience in the Latin literally means to listen. Yeah. And, and Christ is always talking about his obedience and he's listening. It's not my word, but I hear the word of the Father and I, and I speak it, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know, Father, you don't need me to say these things, but I say it for the benefit of the people around me. They're, he's wanting them to understand that we are called to obedience, to listen to the Father and be able to participate then in the life that he offers to us. Yeah. If we're just trying to go to heaven and get out of hell, then as Paul says in Colossians, we're going to get there, but our pants are going to be on fire. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing him, obviously. Right, right. But our pants are going to be on fire. And, and, and St. John of Climacus wrote a book called The Latter of Divine Ascent. He says there are three kinds of Christians. Again, I'm paraphrasing. He's much more eloquent. But he says that there are the, the slaves of God. So they do what God calls them to do for fear of punishment. So they just don't want to go to hell. Then there are the servants of God. They do what they do because they seek a reward. So they just want to go to heaven. Then there are the friends of God who do what they do because of their love for God. That's what, we call, what we're called to. Yeah. That's why we go through the suffering that we do. There's a Russian saying that even in English rhymes, that no, no salvation without tribulation. Now, we don't have like this dour, negative worldview about things. It's just simply that because of the nature of our stubbornness in our sin and our fallenness, we oftentimes have to suffer in order to have all of that stuff cleared out of the way for us so that we can focus not on what God promises us, what he gives to us, but on him himself. Yeah. Which is what C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory. Don't focus on the weight of your own glory. He keeps coming up in this conversation, doesn't I he? I love him. I love him. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, he's a saint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, well, he's great because he's, he's just outside of our realm of experience. He's just far enough away in the past that he can speak in as an old wise figure. Yes. But he's not too far away that that 
the culture is completely different. Yes. So it's a, it's a it's a sweet spot. And as he himself said, don't you know? Wait till your heroes die. Yeah. <laughs> before you accept them, he's <laughs> yeah. dead. He's yeah. dead. So he's you know we we can accept the things that he says and talk about them and everything and not have to worry about him saying something to make us all look like fools tomorrow. <laughs> I I love your word on participation because I I've been. I've been saying, I just, um, I was going through a, a Wednesday night series recently, and I was, I was trying to explain that in the, in the Baptist tradition, we, we tend to summarize the calling of the Christian as go and tell, mm-hmm. um, and I think a better alternative to that is go and participate. And the reason why I think that is because we are not all called to be missionaries, but we are all called to be priests, yes. and priesthood is, is all about participating in well, participating in the 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 Christ event, really, yes. and so the Eucharist is is kind of a microcosm of our life with God. Um, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Come and see. That's yeah. sort of like yeah a motto in the Orthodox Church. Like yeah, you know what? We can sit and we can have a conversation, but the conversation is always going to f- fall far short. Yeah, come and see, witness to what is manifest there absorb it. It takes time. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Salvation is a process. I've been saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved is the way Mm -hmm. that we, when people ask me like, and this is not original with me, but when people ask me, are you saved? You know, that's, that's my pat answer. I've been saved. I mean, there was a moment when I was baptized and chrismated. I received the life of Christ. I received the Spirit sealed within me. I partook of the Eucharist, so now I'm being transformed in the body of Christ, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm being saved because it's a process as well, and I will be saved because there will be a day when I will participate in the fullness of it. Yes. Now, going back to the icons, though, that's part of that process. Hmm. You know, because we are called, Christians means a little Christ. So that means one who is set apart unto God. So we're not called to just set apart some part of our life, just our moral life, let's say. You know, or maybe just one day of the seven in the week or whatever. We're called for all of our life to be taken up into Christ. And so when I said earlier, you know, we have the music to sanctify our sense of hearing, the incense, our sense of smell, etc. Yeah. We go, and it's a very physical... People oftentimes will say about the Orthodox Church that it's very mystical, and that's true to a limited extent. It's also very physical, though. Mm. Those two things are, are brought together. Well, that's what incarnation is. Bringing the <laughs> senses know, bringing into worship. Yeah. yeah. So you walk into a church, and if you're an Orthodox, practicing Orthodox Christian, when you walk into the church, the first thing you do is you make a bow, you make the sign of the cross, you have a prayer, you venerate the icon, you're not worshiping the icon, you're venerating the icon. You go and you do that to m- maybe multiple icons within the church, making a bow, making the sign of the cross which is the mark of us as being Christians, we've been signed by the sign of the cross, and then venerating these icons, recognizing that we are participants in the fullness of the church, that there is no distinction for us between the militant church and the triumphal church. We are one church, and we all worship together. Um, and then you go and you, take, you, you light a candle as well, uh, which has, has all kind, is, is fraught with meaning, um, but not, we're not sanctifying emotion. Right? We are participating in a sacrament, in mm. all of these different things, because we're participating in Christ himself. But what that does is it does create cosmos out of chaos. It takes everything... That's what happened at the baptism of Christ, and it's represented in our icon of the baptism. We have in the icon of Christ, Christ fully submerged, and as an iconic image there, that is representative of him in the tomb, too. Yeah. 
And even our icon of the nativity is that way. He is in the cave that the manger was in, but he is inside a black hole there, basically. He's in the tomb. Yes. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. It looks like the like the, tomb, the, the um, cloths in the grave. Uh, he's in the manger. The manger looks like the empty tomb, et cetera, et cetera. But in the baptism, the icon of, of, of theophany, the baptism of Christ, you have down in the water, you have this symbolic image of chaos, because in Jewish tradition, and it's represented in the creation story, you have this understanding that sort of the chaos of the water is is what out of, is out of, no, uh, okay, well, so there's some nuances to this. I'll just, I'll just say this. Sure. The spirit hovers over the chaotic waters, and then out of that is creation. We believe, obviously, in creation out of nothing. But yes. Still, we'll just stick with that image for yeah. a second here. God starts with chaos exactly. and then brings order. Yeah. And then you have the same thing, though, when Christ is baptized. Yeah. And so when Christ is baptized, the chaos that is the product of the fall, uh, he brings order to it. And so you see chaos symbolically represented in the water in chaos himself, hmm. as Christ brings order to everything. Yeah. And... Uh, and so in our prayers at the baptismal service of an individual, we reference the, the waters of theophany. And by God's grace, there are times even when people bring water from the Jordan River to us, so when we have the baptism, we put some of the Jordan River water in the baptism. Yeah. And I love an image that Charles Williams uses in one of his novels. I forget which one it is, but it's a story about a woman who dies, and she has some period where she's sort of visiting places in London that she had been part of her earthly life, and she's standing on... London Bridge, and as she's looking at the Thames River, it's sort of like she gets this closer and closer magnification of the river, looking deeper and deeper into its innermost being, so to speak, and in the very center of it is this golden thread, and she comes to the realization that that is the theophany water of the Jordan River, and that truly Christ in his baptism created cosmos out of the chaos of the fall. And so that's what we're participating into. So everything in our life, going back to how we worship with icons and candles and incense and all these things, is about bringing those things into Christ himself. They're being set apart for him. Every part of our life, which obviously does include morality and things like that as well, um, every part of it is being brought into him so that every part of our life participates in Christ. Because I don't want just the minimal amount that gets me into heaven with my pants on fire. I want the fullness. Yeah. Well, to, to shy away from the fullness is, is, is based in fear. Yes. Right? And, and to live a life in fear is not a good thing. Yeah. You know, how many times in the Bible does God say, do not be afraid? It's That's, probably the most common phrase that we read. Yeah. yeah. Um, one, one other thing that just came to mind while you were talking about icons and incarnation, it seems to me, based on what you're saying, that, and again, this is as someone who's never actually used an icon in worship, but it seems like to to denounce icons or to say that they have no place in worship is to undermine the incarnation itself yes. because because you're using the image that God himself set up, which is Christ, yes. Um, and so to deny icons is to, in, in kind of this, this backward sort of way, deny the, the, the flesh and body of Christ. Yes. And the fact that you can see Christ and you can touch him. Absolutely. And I know that some people would balk at me saying something along those lines and not saying, well, you know, but icons might be a nice, pious addition to your 
to your devotionals or something like that. So how can you say that it's absolutely necessary? And it would go to that sense of fullness, maximalized, a maximum sort of experience and everything yeah. like that. The Orthodox Church truly is maximalist in its approach to salvation in a lot of ways. But the the Church teaches and we experience that our worship with icons and everything is our um, participation in the in the truth of the incarnation, and th- and that's very essential. Now, I will say, you know, we have icons of Christ, and then we have icons of saints. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Yes, yeah. and people will say, okay, well, so are you worshiping those saints? I mean, what is this about venerating their icons or praying to them and that sort of thing? Well, first of all, we pray to the saints because we don't believe in a separation between the militant and the triumphal church. We are all the one church. There is just one. Okay, what does that mean, militant and triumphal? It's a it's a term that I've come across in my own experience in Protestantism. Uh, it, it also is in the Catholic Church, which I believe is where it originated, to speak of the earthly church, which is still in tribulation, so to speak, and then the church, which is triumphal, which is already those who've reposed already in the Lord. Okay. And, and there is an inherent separation between the two. And... Um, but for us, there's not a separation between the two. So when mm. I turn to a saint in prayer, it's no different than if I turned to you as a fellow Christian and said, you know, there's this really rough thing going on in my life. Please pray for me. There's not a separate... We're, we're, the, thing, the thing that unites us in Christ is not that we happen to still be breathing air on this planet. The thing that unites us is Christ. Mm. Well, the thing that unites me to a saint is, is that. We're not separated because I'm breathing air and he's not. Hopefully, we're both breathing God. <laughs> you know, silly kind of thing there. But yes, that's what we're hoping that we're doing, is that together we're united in Christ. So I can turn to him in prayer. My And, and venerating them, venerating an icon, my grandfather, who's not Orthodox, when my grandmother reposed, took a photo of her, put it on the bedside, every night kisses it before he goes to bed, every morning kisses it when he wakes up, talks to her, that sort of thing. He's not Orthodox, but that is a manifestation of the inherently natural sense of the union that at least should be there amongst all people, and it should be in God, since that comes from God. He manifests that. There's no theological contextualization for that. It's just, I love my wife. I don't feel like she's gone. I'm not treating her like she's gone. Hmm. Well, for us, that is a truth, not just a sentiment. I'm not saying that it's, it's a truth for him, too. He might treat it as a sentiment, but I would say it's a truth. But for us, it's a truth in the church as well. So praying to a saint is praying to somebody who, like I am, is alive in Christ, right? Wow. Um, they, they have passed through the tribulations, and the whole, perp- the whole aspect of our life, of aging and everything, is one of slowly divesting ourselves of our dependency upon the sensual worldly things and learning to become dependent more upon God. I must decrease so that he may increase. That's what aging should be from a Christian perspective. Now, so when we go and venerate an icon, we are not worshiping. The fathers are very clear in their text, in our canons, whatnot, that there is a separation between worship and veneration. Uh, okay. We have respect for great moral leaders, great Christian people uh, who are more mature than us in the spiritual life. We have respect for... Uh, men and women in the military for the sacrifices that they make or for great um, political leaders, whatever it might be. We have a, a natural human understanding that you elevate certain individuals for one reason or another. Yeah. Well, veneration of the person is the same thing, but we're not venerating them because they have become anything other than a transparent vessel manifestation in Christ. 
So, for instance, in all of the icons of saints, they have a halo. In the halo of Christ, there's a cross, and it says, O Theon, the one God, yes. I am, right? In the icons of the saints, there's a halo, but there's no cross, there's certainly not O Theon. There's just a halo, because they are not being venerated because of their personal piety or holiness or sanctity or perfection. They are venerated because they have become vessels of the holiness of Christ himself. So that halo is Christ's holiness in them. They have par- it's, it's an icon of them as being ones who have truly participated in Christ. So they are an icon, a reflection, an image to us of our high calling as Christians to be true icons of Christ. As Christ is an icon of the Father to us, the fullness of the divine Godhead that can be revealed to man has been revealed to us in him, we are called to be icons of him. And the church gives that to us in its very nature and being and experience, even when we as individuals fall short of that. The church as, a, as, as, as being the body of Christ does not fall short of that. So somebody asked me here recently, well, I, I, I believe a lot of the same things that you're, that you're saying about the nature of the church and whatnot, but why do I need the church that you are calling the Orthodox Church or whatever. Well, I would say that it's not about being the Orthodox Church. It's about, you know, like, I can take the name Orthodox and be completely, in little caps, little letters, unorthodox. Yeah. In, you know, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in my faith and everything like that. So even though I may sort of administratively have membership in this particular parish, doesn't mean that I actually truly have membership in Christ if I'm not a faithful servant of Christ, if I don't have that obedience that's an icon of Christ's obedience and everything Not like everyone that. who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom exactly. of heaven. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and there's a phrase in the Church Fathers, you know, we know where the Holy Spirit works and is and operates, but we do not know where he does not work. You know, so there again is a mystery with regard to, to that. But at any rate, where was I going with that? Um, my participation in the Church or uh, let me put it this way, the Church and, and its unity, its faithfulness to the faith of the apostles that they received in Christ. Um, and remember, too, like you've probably seen this in, in you know, study Bibles, where it will say, like in Galatians or where, wherever, uh, the translation may be of the King James or, even, or the New King James or some other will be uh, the faith in Christ. But then there will oftentimes be a footnote that says this should really be the faith of Christ. It is, it's, it's the faith of Christ in us that saves us. It's the obedience of Christ to the Father that saves us. It's his high priesthood that saves us. The, we're saved by grace. That's what it means. But the grace is, our, is him making his home in us and then us making our home in him. So when we in the church fall short of that, it does not necessarily mean that we are falling short of participation in that in its fullness because the church itself is that. The church itself has sort of an economia, uh, an allowance. It, it sort of lifts us up even when we are in the depths of our sin. I don't know if I'm making any sense here. You are, yeah. I'll there. give you an example. For us as Orthodox, when I serve the liturgy and the gifts are consecrated, whether or not they, and I'm using human terms here as Paul yeah. would say, yeah. whether or not they become body and blood or not is not dependent upon my personal holiness because it's the working of God. So my shortcomings do not diminish the church, but in fact the church, even in the midst of my shortcomings, elevates me and all of the brothers and sisters in Christ into that oneness. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, 
everything that that you're saying here we can branch out and touch on individually and this could easily turn into a 6 hour conversation certainly but, um okay so i'm still i'm still wrestling with the the icons and saints thing okay sure um in the apostles creed which at my church we recite every sunday we say i believe in the communion of saints um but we don't often think about you know what that actually means on a practical level right do you do you think that there is okay so so if we if we venerate the saints right then we're interacting with them how much do you think how much do you think that interaction goes the other direction do you think that saints who have died but are still alive in Christ do you think that they interact with us today in a way that we could absolutely speak speak of tangibly absolutely okay and what does that look like i could give you examples of individuals who have had encounters with the virgin mary for instance okay cuz this is where the rubber meets the road absolutely is, yeah. yeah um trying to think about how I want to approach this, because there yeah. are a couple of different ways, and I also don't want to go reveal too much of certain individuals' sure, sure. experiences. But have you personally had any experiences in this realm? I have had experiences of the demonic. Okay. I have not had an experience of that tangible nature of a saint. Of the saints. And I consider this a gift. Why do you consider this a gift? Lest I fall into the trap of desiring those spiritual experiences. Uh-huh. Instead of God himself. Okay. We, it is God that we should desire. That whole experience I laid out to you briefly of my past and all the different places I went, the only thing that kept me, like Job, who I said was sort of a mentor for me on that, he was focused on God himself. Yeah. He did not lose his fidelity to God when God appeared not to offer him fidelity. Yeah. And that is the testimony of the saints. This why for us as Orthodox, the martyrs are the epitome of, of sanctity. You know, and our stories oftentimes do sort of border, if not go beyond the border of the absurd. You've got stories of saints who have limbs and sometimes even heads chopped off, and the next day it's like it's back on. It's like it's only a flesh wound, literally. <laughs> You know, and uh, um, because the next day it's just right back there or whatever, and they're praising God. Well, hagiography is a literary style, so you have to take that into consideration as well when you read those things. It has very, it has educational purposes in the way that some of it is written, and they certainly didn't have some of the sort of more scientific criteria for writing biography that we have nowadays. At any rate, though, what is absolutely a truth revealed in all of that is the fact that those saints were not at all constrained by whatever persecution they went through. And their glory to God for all things, in the midst of all things, the thanksgiving, the Eucharist that they offered up, that they become that they became as Saint Ignatius, the God bearer of Antioch, said, I want to become broken bread and poured out wine. In other words, he wanted to become Eucharist. Hmm. You know, we break the bread and we pour the wine. He wanted to become the body and blood of Christ. He wanted to become Christ. And to, as Paul says, fulfill that which is lacking in the suffering of Christ. And they do that with an undiminished sense of freedom and joy and thanksgiving. 
they are not just free from sin, Satan, death. They are also free for Christ, joy, liberty, wonder, etc., etc., thanksgiving. Um, so most of the prayer life, for instance, in the Orthodox Church, you know, sort of swings between these two pendulums of prayers of repentance and prayers of thanksgiving. But many of our prayers of thanksgiving are literally prayers we've received from men and women who were being martyred as they offered those prayers. And those prayers that they offered during their martyrdom became taken up by the church as, as the conscience and the prayer and the life of the church as a whole. So glory to God for all things was a phrase that was given by St. John Chrysostom as he was dying in exile. You know, and now it's, a, it's, a, it's a, one of those monologistic one-word, one-thought-type prayers that people use all of the time. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. At any rate... Um, Ask your question again. Well, I, you did kind of answer it, that that would be one example in which the lives of the saints still affect us today, yes. long after they've been martyred. So um, I can, I can yeah. give you one personal—I I can give you personal examples, but if you're yeah. asking for, like, a saint appeared right in front of me or something like that, then no, and I don't— Well, I don't know if that's actually how it would play out or not. I, it's kind of an it open-ended does. question. Sometimes so. it does. I know somebody who— who the Theo, to whom the Theotokos appeared. Theotokos meaning birth giver of God. It's, right. a, it's a title we have for the Theot- for uh, the Virgin Mary. When I was not Orthodox, when I was living in England, and I was at Lindisfarne, I, there's a little small island nearby that's called St. Cuthbert's Island. And there are a couple of them that are sort of St. Cuthbert's Island, where he had lived at various different place, times uh, while he was there. But this is a very small one you can walk across to when the tide has gone out from Lindisfarne to it. Small, just a lump of, of ground that rises up out of the water. And there's a pit there, which is where he at one point had had a little hut of some sort. And they've sort of maintained, there's no physical structure or anything there now. But at any rate, I was there, and one morning I got up, and I went out. I was Lutheran. And I went out, and, uh, and bear in mind that in the Book of Concord, you know, it says that the prayer to saints and veneration of saints is, is, is good and a wholesome thing, but not necessary. So it was not part of my practice. I'm out there, and I'm in this. I've got a, a copy of the timetable for the tides for the causeway. So I think I've got plenty of time to go out there, do my morning prayers and devotions. So I do those things. I stand up. There's water everywhere. It's in November, late November on the North Sea. It's freezing cold. The last day that the group I was with were supposed to be there, and I didn't have any other clothes with me, mm-hmm. really, honestly. Poor college student living abroad. If I'd swum a- swam across, I'd be wearing those wet, freezing clothes for the hours-long drive back to where I, w- where I lived. And, uh, but then, on the other hand, it would be close to eight hours before the tide was going to go out. So I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do here. So without any forethought, I just say, well, St. Cuthbert, I'm yours. And then I got back down into this hole, and I started reading the Bible again and praying and everything like that. A little while later, I hear a noise. And, and, and so when I stood up that first time, there was one of the members of our group out on the coast, of, on the shoreline of Lindisfarne Island. And we were supposed to have Mass. I was with a group of Catholics there, and they were supposed to have Mass that morning. And she looks and she sees me and she says, Matthew, what's going on? What, ha- what happened? I was like, I, you're just going to have to go tell everybody I'm here and I don't know what's going to be the result of this. And so she goes off. Well, she goes, she tells them, they're like, well, we're about to have the service. There's nobody who's going to get out there. It was raining at this point. He's going to go out and get him. He's just going to have to wait a while, which I was fine with. So they start to have the service and then she says, she told me, she said, we, 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 they decided they would say a prayer for you in the service. Well, they say the prayer and I walk in the door right after the prayer. So what happened? How did that happen? What happened is I'm out there 
She runs. She goes off to tell them. I get back down into the hole, huddle up, pull my jacket over me because it's starting to rain, start reading my Bible and praying. I hear a noise. I think maybe somebody's coming to rescue me. So I stand up. There's nobody there, but there's an otter on the island that's come up out of the, out of the water on the island. So I stand there. I look at the otter. I talk to the otter. I just like have this moment with the otter. And then I get back into the hole, and I cover myself up again, and the otter does whatever it did. Well, then a little while later, I hear another noise. So I stand up, and here comes a boat. And they said that they were out working on a buoy in the channel, fixing a light that had gone out. And when I stood up to see the otter, they saw me. So they came when they were done, and they got me. So they brought me in, and whereas people expected me to be out there for hours before somebody would rescue me, I walked into this church, this Catholic church, right as they just said a prayer that I would be <laughs> delivered from the island. So everybody hmm. in the parish just turned around and looked at me, and I'm like, oh, I did not mean to interrupt the service. I go stand in the corner. This little girl, a few uh, pews ahead of me, she's looking at her mom, looks down, looks at me, looks up at her mom, and finally says something to her, and then she comes back. I've never seen this girl in my life. She, little girl comes back, stands next to me, and she looks up at me and looks back down and looks up at me again and finally tentatively puts out her hand and reaches to touch my pants to see if I'm wet, to see if I swam across the, you mm-hmm. know, the, the area there. And sort of like was their jaw dropped when I was dry. So everybody asked me what happened afterwards, and I tell them. In fact, that little girl's family invited me over to their house for tea. So we're talking about it, and I mentioned the otter. And they say, you saw the otter? Like, yeah. I said, you know, when St. Cuthbert was alive, the otters and the birds, seabirds, would bring food to him. When he reposed, according to tradition, the otters disappeared. And people only see that otter once a year. And, and when someone sees the otter or an otter, it's considered to be a great blessing for that person. You saw that otter. And I thought to myself, well, it truly was a blessing because when I stood up and looked at that otter, that's when these guys in the boat saw me. So literally in that moment, it was a blessing. But also it sort of opened me up to a new experience with regard to Cuthbert. So when I got back to Sunderland where I lived, half an hour from Durham where his relics are, I immediately went to Durham, sat there by him, talked to him, prayed to him, and then something just totally changed in my understanding at that point, not about the Orthodox Church or anything like that, in my understanding of the communion of saints. And my oldest son's middle name is Cuthbert. I can speak of other similar experiences that I've had with others, and in some of those other instances, they've manifest themselves in terms of a conclusion with other kids having those saints as part of their names. I've been on Mount Athos, which is a peninsula in Greece of, of 20 monasteries and many, many little skeets, and when you walk into some of these places, I believe when you walk into St. Nicholas, you feel the prayer as a palpable reality. You feel the communion of saints there. You don't necessarily see, outside of the icons themselves, this individual saint or whatever, but you can have an experience of them. And I could speak of, of something even more tangible than that, but, but I also cannot say that I've ever had a saint just appear to me, which we do read about. And I do know people who have had those things. Mm-hmm. Well, there are virtually countless stories. Absolutely. Uh, just through church history. Yes. It's, it's hard to, for, for even, even for people in our extremely materialistic culture, it's hard to discount every single story. Certainly. I mean, at some point, to, com- to dismiss story after story after story gets a bit ridiculous. Yes, so. it does. And as Paul says, you know, if the resurrection is not true, then we of all men are most to be pitied. And that resurrection is not just something that is in the future. We participate mm. in the resurrection from the very moment that we are made Christians. Yeah. So that'll, and that doesn't stop. We don't like take a hiatus from that 
during our death, you know, from the time that we repose and the, to the second coming. Yeah. It's Do a, you have another story? I'd love to hear it. Oh, I probably have plenty. Of, I'll have a lot of different stories. Okay. But if not, that's fine too. I, I know. I can't think of one that you might want to hear right off of the top of my head. But, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, you said that you've also had some some personal experiences with spiritual warfare and stuff like that. Um, that is an area that, um, I mean, it's fine if you don't want to share the story or if you do either way, but, um, regardless, I, I think it's, it's, in, it's a part of our life in Christ that we don't talk enough about. Yes. Um, I mean, as we have said throughout this conversation, we are in the midst of a great war yes. and, uh, and there are ways that that plays out practically in our lives. And so, yeah, I, I have not had any experiences with with uh saints that i know of um but i have had encounters with with uh demonic forces um and and it is very real so it absolutely is i i'll, I'll choose not to necessarily go into detail about my experience but the context was my baptism into the orthodox church okay and i i've oftentimes thought about something that C.S. Lewis writes in, who here he is again, yeah. uh, screw tape Letters, you know, where the advice is given that if you have somebody who's basically already in your camp, you don't need to appear to them. Why, mm-hmm. why make a demonic manifestation to a person who's already agnostic towards yeah. God? Yeah. You know, or, or, or there's the instance where, where the individual begins to have some questions about God, and so the advice is, well, use his passions against him. Remind him it's time for lunch. Remind him he hasn't read the newspaper yet, you know, and to distract him. Well, if we live in a distracted culture, there's perfect sense in acknowledging that we also live in a culture that doesn't normally have demonic manifestations. Because, look, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to take some uber-fundamentalist view about our culture, sure, uh, some form of pietism or something like that, which is actually a heresy for us in the Orthodox Church. But if a person is already agnostic towards God, atheistic towards God, indifferent towards God, or whatever, fully consumed in their passions. Putting it bluntly right at this moment, Satan's already got him. He doesn't need to start manifesting himself or whatever to him, because what his goal is, is to take him from God, to take us from God. Mm -hmm. And if he's already got him in his camp, he doesn't need to work on him. He needs to go work on somebody else in that sense. Yeah. And so he continues to distract us, continues to, as Neil Postman, you know, titled his one of his books, amuse ourselves to death. We're, we're, he allows us to continue to be distracted by amusement so that we just amuse ourselves into spiritual death, too. Mm-hmm. We fulfill our passions in the most negative sense rather than renewing our passions in Christ, as we're called to, which is what the whole ascetic tradition of the Orthodox Church is about. It's not about beating up our natural passions. It is about restoring their natural purpose, restoring, again, cosmos out of chaos, order out of disorder within the life of the individual, reordering it so that the mind is, you know, the mind is an organ that receives all sorts of stimuli, but it's not an organ actually of discernment, judgment, but not discernment. The heart is an organ of of discernment, and in our spiritual tradition, the heart is the organ that knows God. So we have a knowledge of God in the heart, which gives to the judging mind the discernment, in other words, the criteria by which it judges, 
all of the stimuli that comes into it in order to discern, to discern whether it's good, evil, just, unjust, virtuous, not virtuous, etc., etc. So the way we would put that in our tradition is that the mind descends into the heart and is ruled by the heart, which knows God. Hmm. But the way that we experience life in the context of the fall is the exact opposite. We diminish the heart, and yet how many times do we find in the scriptures that God says he desires to heal the brokenhearted, etc., that he desires the heart of man? You know, or, or when you have David saying in the Psalms that he has a heart for God or various different things. That's what, it's all about the heart. At any rate, what we experience more often is that the mind is being constantly pulled in all these different directions by all these different stimuli. It no longer has that particular discernment to be able to judge those things, and so it takes whatever form of judgment is offered to it by that stimuli. And that's why we live in a clutter of noise, internally as well as externally. And, um, and so you also then have in the, in the Church Fathers, St. Isaac of Syria and others who say that the language of heaven is silence. They don't mean by that mm. that we're all going to be mute. It, what it means is that it's going to be an, an ambiance, an atmosphere, a reality, an experience of, of l- attentive listening to God himself. And, and our, instead of noise, there'll be this one voice of praise and worship. So it's the opposite of chaos. It's the opposite yeah. of chaos. Yeah. 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 So in Revelation, it says the sea is no more. Yes. So, yeah. And by the yeah. way, the book of Revelation is never quoted in our Orthodox services. Okay. All the rest of the New Testament is. The book of Revelation is not, but the book of Revelation both grew out of our liturgical experience and informs it. It is an experience that John had during a liturgy. And it is a, it is a uh, manifestation of the heavenly liturgy. And so when you look at the book of Revelation in light of liturgical worship in the Orthodox Church, you see correspondences between much of the book of Revelation and what happens in the, in the church and in its worship. So you have all the elders about the table and the, table, the, the altar table, and it's the throne of Christ, of God himself, and, and it's built upon the, the bones and the blood of the martyrs. Well, we have our altar table, which we call the throne of Christ. The only thing that is on it is the gospel, not the whole New Testament, not the whole Bible, just the gospel, so Christ himself, so to speak, and also what's called a tabernacle that has a piece of the Eucharist in it, we don't have services of veneration of it, but it is Christ enthroned. Mm-hmm. And in that altar, that altar is literally built with bones of, of martyrs in it, just like in Revelation. The oh, elders, the okay. priests, and the bishops stand around it. You know, like all these things have their correspondences. Yeah. Because John was at a liturgy when, the, when he had this vision. And the vision, sort of, the content of the vision that John received was given to him in the form of the liturgy at which he was worshiping and praying. In in earthly liturgy, or do you mean he was caught up in the heavenly liturgy? Or is it useless yes. to distinguish between the two? It's useless. Okay. To dis- because we would say, I, I know we're, we're all audio here, so people yeah. can't see all the motions with my yeah. hands, but if you draw an, a, a horizontal line in the air here and you say, this is the eternal reality of the sacrifice of Christ, because there's only one sacrifice. Right. When we have the Eucharist, we're not re-sacrificing Christ. That's why in our service we call it a bloodless and rational sacrifice. So there's just this one sacrifice of Christ, and there's an eternal um, liturgy that is taking place, a celestial liturgy, so to speak, that is taking place there. And whenever we liturgize, we are we are 
there's a unity that is taking place between those two things. So the first part of our liturgy is called the synaxis, or the coming together. And it is when we come together, again, we don't have a, a distinction between the earthly and the heavenly, the militant and the... But still sometimes you have to use terms, you have to dissect to, to educate and understand things. So there's this coming together of, of for us in our experience of this reality. We become what we are uh, in, in both this incarnate and fulfilled form yeah. together. So the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> Always good to hear. Right. Um, man, the time has flown. We are almost at the end of our time. Oh, We're going to have to close up soon. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. As this has I. been Thank this God. has been wonderful. Um, and if you're willing, I would enjoy having you back on. I'd love because to. there are other topics that we haven't covered that I would like to talk with you about. Um, I would love to. There is a there is a phrase that I would love to get your thoughts on, um, and that phrase is uh, "one true church." Yes. And uh, but I do, I think I would be doing a disservice if I asked you now because it would it would have to be too quick of an answer. Yes, that. Um, we would we would um, probably be mis more misleading yeah. and confusing than yeah. not. Um, that I it, that deserves another conversation all its own. Um, but I would love to have that with you if you'd be willing to come back. I so, would love to. Certainly. Um, is there anything that you would like to leave people with? You know, I think that at the heart of Christianity, for every single one of us, there's there's this question that we brought up earlier about what does it mean to be truly human. And the way we would usually put it in more theological terms in the Orthodox Church is it'd be about personhood, or in the Greek, hypostases, which okay. is used in our creed about Christ. You know, you know it's, it's the person of Christ, the hypostases of Christ, and we have a hypostases as well. We are called to become real persons. That's the heart of Christianity. That happens only in Christ, because he himself manifested to us the fullness of the divine Godhead, but also the fullness of human life. And so what we are called, we, we need to be very careful not to diminish what the gospel is. It's, 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 it is truly that God has come to save us from our sin, but that's only, so to speak, a detour to some extent. Uh, St. Athanasius the Great in On the Incarnation says essentially that had there not been a fall and the need for salvation of that sort, God still would have become incarnate, because the whole purpose from before creation was that we would be partakers of the divine nature, that we would participate in the divine life. That is Christianity, nothing less than that. Hmm. To be participators in the divine life, that is the, the meaning, the significance, the only value in our morality. It is what separates us from every other form of morality, and why we though we may be misunderstood by the world, if we stay true to our morality, it is, it is what is at the heart of that. We are not looking to compromise with the world because we want nothing less than participation in the divine. It is not about humanizing God, diminishing him so that we can be freed of our twinge of conscience, of our sense of shame or guilt or whatever it might be, but rather that we are made like him by grace so that we can be truly freed, set truth, the truth sets us free, truly freed of those things by our participation in him, that we are made like him. 
if we understand Christianity as anything less than that, as, as, as C.S. Lewis would put, Christianity and, or, or something and Christianity, then it's not real Christianity. So with that in mind, every one of us, guided by the lights that we have at this particular moment in our life, should be striving for the fullness of that faith. And it's the fullness of, of that participation in Christ. Because not only, I, I mentioned morality, but it's not only the, the underpinning for our morality, it's the underpinning for our prayer, it's the underpinning for our asceticism. It's the under, so, so, again, I know we're running out of time, but like, there is a structure to the way that we fast, etc., in the Orthodox Church. It's not, on the one hand, sort of abs, uh, uh, arbitrary, and it's also not, on the other hand, um, artificial or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's not just sort of at the whims, I've decided to fast from this. And Sometimes we do need to fast from some specific thing, in addition to the fasting that is offered to us by the Church. But the fasting that is given to us by the Church is meant to divest of us those things that separate us from that participation in God and help usher us into His presence. So it, under, it underpins our asceticism, it underpins our worship. The worship is not a sanctification of my emotional attachment to God. Emotions are actually nothing more than just our reaction, and it's a physical reaction generally, to the external stimuli. It's, so it's not a sanctification of our reaction, our physical reaction to external stimuli. What our worship is, is participation in God himself. That's why it's sacramental. That's why it's one because there's only one God, there's only one incarnation, one Lord who has incarnated himself, manifest himself, and we only participate in that one. And that sort of goes, you know, it's like, like wet our appetite for that next discussion, but yeah. But we must understand, whatever our lights are that we're guided by in, in all other respects of our understanding of Christianity, that has to be at the heart of it. We are called, you know, the, the, the vocation of the Christian, as Paul tells us essentially, is one of reconciliation. That was Christ's vocation, that's our vocation as royal priests, that's the vocation within the Orthodox Church of, of the ordained priesthood, is it is a vocation of reconciliation between us and God so that the fruit of that reconciliation is oneness, as, call, as Christ calls us to in his high priestly prayer in John 17. That is what Christianity is. Anything less than that is not true Christianity. It is some sort of compromise with the world. And we shouldn't want anything less than that if we have any self-respect either. Because we should want truly, unadulterated, without compromise, without illusion, we should want the real answer to the question, what does it mean to be human? Why am I here? Who am I? What's the purpose of existence? What's the meaning of life? To end on another Monty Python note there. (laughs) Father Matthew, I am honored to have met you today. It is my pleasure as well. Thank Thank you so much. All right, signing out.